Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try, and I try, and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action The go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Emily Laws. Currently head of brand for the UK's number one dedicated alcohol-free beer lucky saint, Emily's marketing chops span a decade in brand management, PR and brand activation. Leading punters not into temptation since 2018, Lucky Saint is breaking rules, honouring traditions and pouring pints at their very own pub slash office, The Lucky Saint. On the brand's mission, Emily says, We want to be to alcohol-free beer what Guinness is to stout. Our ambition is to create an iconic brand. Cheers to that and welcome to the show, Emily. Hi. What an introduction. Thank you. Right. Seven quick fires, Emily. Tea or coffee? Coffee. London or Leeds? Lee. Uh, no, London, London. I don't know why I said that. Londoner. Break rules or honour traditions? Oh, that's a hard one. I want to say honour traditions. Nice. Uh, tequila in your 20s or alcohol-free beer in your 30s? I thought you might ask that. Definitely alcohol-free beer in my 30s. <laughs> Are we that predictable? Must try harder. Right, Lucky Saint brand code, the ladybird or the nun? The nun, I would say. Although I think she's a saint, but uh, yeah, the nun. Bottle or draft? Draft, definitely. Nothing beats a pint. Nice. And lastly, Daft Punk's Get Lucky or Kylie's I Should Be So Lucky? I'm going to go Kylie. I feel like you can't, she's a bit of an icon and we're trying to be iconic, so I'm going to go Kylie. Oh, you found those far too easy, Emily. <laughs> so listen, to start the show, we always ask every guest about their path to where they are now. So what was your first ever job or jobs, Emily? And then what was your first proper job in marketing? It's my first ever job. Um, so I'm born and raised in London and I worked, when I was 17, worked in the shoe department of the massive top shop in Oxford Circus which is now becoming an Ikea um so yeah I did that for um a summer and absolutely loved it we got an allowance to spend on clothes everyone there was my age I just spent all day kind of helping customers and um it's a bit of a dream job for a 17 year old to be honest what an iconic venue as well yeah it was I loved kind of going into work every day and being in central London and I think that kind of customer service element um because the shoe department was very different to the rest of the shop because the rest of the shop you would just replenish clothes um and not really talk to anyone but the shoe department you were helping people all the time so I loved that um and then my first proper job was I was a PR exec at a um travel and lifestyle PR agency called Nylon um which is now called Hue and Cry. And uh, I got that job. Initially, I was interning with them and then ended up getting a permanent job there, partly because I did languages at university and they had a travel division and one of their clients was based in Paris. So I sort of sold myself in as, as, a, <laughs> as a linguist, which was maybe a little ambitious. Um, but I got to go to Paris, which felt very glamorous when I was 22. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds glamorous now too. Nice. It's, it's funny, isn't it? I think there's there's a linguist door into most careers and professions. So it's quite a versatile skill and, and, and training to have, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I really regret that I haven't kind of used, um, I did French at university, but I haven't used it very much since, which is a real shame. And one of my colleagues grew up in France and I'm always trying to get him to practice with me, but he's uh, far better than I am. But um, yeah, it, I think it got me a, a foot in the door and made me stand out a little bit. Well, how do you think you ended up in this industry? So was there any intent when you studied languages to then move into the world of PR or marketing? Or was that all just kind of serendipity? No, not at all. I, I really didn't even know 
brand management. I didn't even know what that was when I was at university. Um, I did English literature and French just because those, those were the two subjects that I enjoyed the most and I loved reading and talking. Um, and I really wanted to do a year abroad. So I really was not thinking about my career. And I remember seeing a career advisor at university towards the end and and they basically told me, oh, you, you can be a teacher. And that was the only thing they, they sort of said. So they didn't give me any insight into marketing or brand. Um, but uh, I think what what ended up happening, I got into PR because originally I wanted to go into journalism um, and I did an internship at the Yorkshire Post because I did I was at university in Leeds. Um, and the guy said to me, I, re- I really respect uh, you choosing a career in journalism. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, because you're going to be earning a lot less than all your friends. And I thought, hmm, what's all about that then? Um, and uh, I remember my first day at, at the Yorkshire Post also pretending I liked black coffee to fit in. Um, and yeah, so I thought I did. I, I needed another way in and um, ended up interning at a few PR agency. I always wanted to do something in kind of comms. Um, and then over time sort of went from PR to more kind of broad marketing management, then into activations and then sort of entered a more kind of brand management role at Lucky Saints. So I've done a bit of everything from a from a marketing side. But yeah, started wanting to be a journalist. I thought I thought it sounded glamorous and sort of imagined myself traveling the world. But um he he dashed my dreams. I can't remember his name, but I got the Yorkshire Post. It's um it's funny, we've actually had a few recently. I think I think Greg Hahn at Mischief, I think he I think he at least flirted with the world of journalism, but there was something about it being obviously entirely editorial or almost entirely editorial, I suppose, is a fairer way of um, summarising it. Didn't quite fit. Um, so it's interesting that you managed to kind of turn away from it before you were kind of in too deep. But the careers advisor, I mean, I I find those uh, I find those sessions fascinating. I got um, Antiques Dealer, oh, wow. as you're wondering, <laughs> which, which really confused me at the time because other than being aware of a TV show called Lovejoy on telly at the time, I didn't really have any reference points. I, I honestly didn't um, even really know what a grad scheme was at the time. No one talked to me about it at all. You know, my, my parents had quite traditional careers. My dad was a solicitor, my mum was a teacher. And so I didn't have anyone who really knew about the world of marketing or, or even anything outside of those more vocational careers. So um, yeah, I kind of found my way into it rather than straight out of university into a blue chip to do a grad scheme. It just, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't the route that I took. Do you remember at least uh, growing up, do you remember any ads that kind of burnt into your memory or that you enjoyed? Because that's always an interesting one that I find that the vast majority of people we've spoken to on the podcast and we're on, I think, 120. 324 people that is very few of them were aware in the kind of proper sense of the industry at all and yet a lot of them kind of retrospectively think oh yeah I do remember really enjoying this particular ad and for me it was the Rowan Atkinson Barclay card ads which I just well I still adore to this day was there anything that you can remember from growing up about the industry at least I I'm just trying to think what ads I can remember the one that springs to mind for some reason is I think it was for Levi's. Do you remember Flat Eric? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why that springs to mind. I haven't thought about that probably about two decades. But um, I remember TV being like a real treat when I was younger. And um, my mum was a teacher, so she would often have parents' evenings. My older brother would look after us and it would be a real treat. He would kind of cook us dinner and we'd watch TV. Nice. So I really remember ads like, um, yeah, Flat Eric, Springs to mind the the P is it PG Tips Monkey um, that definitely Guinness and and all of those sort of the the one with the waves the famous um, one of the surfer I kind of remember that era of of advertising where TV ads were the thing um, because I think yeah when I was younger we just had I mean when we got Freeview it was like the most amazing thing that ever happened in the household. Um, so when when there were just five, I'm making myself sound really old now. But when we're, when there were just five channels, I, I really remember kind of TV ads. If there was only a few, and everyone would talk about them. Um, yeah. For some reason, Slat Eric and Levi springs to mind. Oh, there's there's no reason why that shouldn't spring to mind. I mean, that's absolutely fantastic. I was going to say it's interesting. The first two you mentioned, Flat Eric and the PG Tips Monkey, had kind of stuffed uh, stuffed animal type mascot type things, which. 
there's been loads of research right into the significance of brand mascots and it's almost as an industry we've shied away from like the obvious and the entertainment that comes from having such amazing playful iconic brand codes if you like yeah exactly and i think that that idea of brand codes is something that we talk about a lot of lucky saint and not feeling like we need to bring something new to the table with every campaign and and just repeating our brand codes um and behaving more like an iconic brand you know when you think about i don't know whether it's kfc or guinness or coca-cola it's those sort of colors shapes brand codes logos that you remember and i think that's that's what i've really taken from being here is just not giving into the maybe the sort of pressure of linkedin that you have to have something new to talk about all the time it's okay to sort of repeat brand codes if you've got really good ones it's one of the most encouraging things um emily that i have read in in our research for today's show in fact was a post about your recent campaign for lucky saint where you do talk about not doing new for new sake and the reason why it, it really kind of resonates and i'm really impressed by it is that the brand is is you know relatively young i mean well relatively it's an infant right it's only five six years old is that right um five years five years old so you so you would be you know well within your rights to still be trying to define those perhaps or at least have a more logical argument i suppose i was at the festival of marketing last week and, and neil shah who's head of guinness uk um at diageo he talked about the significance of guinness and obviously he felt i think the quote was he felt he was standing on the shoulders of giants which is a nod to the same point you're making, right? It's just don't disrupt, don't change for change's sake. And it's really, really encouraging and really refreshing to read a brand that's so young saying exactly the same things. It's brilliant. Yeah, I think it's also one of the things that we talk about is be iconic, which is a high standard to hold yourself to. Um, it's not easy to kind of make everything iconic, but I think having that as a, a sort of rule of thumb for us and our marketing team has been really helpful because every time you're tempted to do something gimmicky or just jump on a trend for the sake of it, remembering that um, standard of is this iconic? Is this something that you know can can live for a really long time in, in the world of whether it's advertising or marketing or brand um, is a really useful kind of yardstick to measure ourselves against. And I think it stops us from giving into that pressure that you get from yeah social media, whether that's LinkedIn, TikTok to always be doing something new, always be doing something wacky. Um, I think kind of wackiness is something that we try very hard not to to do with our brand. Um, and that's, I think, what's helped us build such a strong brand in a, in a short space of time. But it's also kind of agreeing on that as a rule of thumb, be iconic from, from top to bottom. So our founder, our marketing director, the fact that we have like that permission to not just jump on things, not just do something for the sake of it has been really helpful. Yeah. And does being iconic, does that shape all decisions or are you just talking about in the context of, of marketing and brand? I think it does. Because I, I mean, I say that because, you know, you, your office is a pub, right? So there's, yeah. there's, there's things kind of outside of the world, although still overlapping, of course, where iconic seems to be quite a quite a theme and quite a driver. Yeah, definitely. I think it it matters to us that everything we do kind of stands the test of time because we want our brand to be like a Guinness, like a Red Bull in like 50 years time. Um, so rather than behave like a small FMCG brand, rather than be scrappy all the time, although behind the scenes it does, you know, we are scrappy people in the sense of we'll do anything to kind of get get it done. But like you say, you know, opening a four-story pub in Marlebone called The Lucky Saint um, you know, creating really striking assets for our out of home campaign, um, making sure, you know, the fact that we only have one product so far and it's been five years and not giving into that temptation to just innovate for the sake of it or create loads of flavors for the sake of it um, is all kind of anchored in that theme of, of wanting to be an iconic brand. And I think that's really helped us sort of put away from the competition um, and be alongside brands like Guinness, like, you know, Corona, Corona Peroni, who've been around for such a long time um, and we're up there with them in, in you know, awards we're being nominated for or the fact that we're in the top 10 in grocery and, and things like that. So it is really exciting. And I think sometimes it means sort of in a flattering way, people think we're much bigger than, than we are, which can be challenging from a budget perspective because you get approached with these incredible opportunities and you have to kind of think of a way of, of doing it. Um, 
on a on a scale up budget but i think that's really exciting and i feel really happy that i've been a part of that for the last three and a, three and a bit years yeah fantastic we're just to, just taking back to one of your um previous points you made a few minutes ago about the, the the pressure to change that i think lots of people in this industry feel especially when they're in charge of a brand and it's it's advertising campaigns and it's nice to hear that you feel like you've almost got that permission from internally and from your own kind of, I suppose, founders and leaders of, of Lucky Saint to, to not change for change's sake. Where do you think that pressure comes from? Like, where is it the worst? Because sometimes I find that the pressure actually comes from inside the building, inside the brand's own office walls. Sometimes it might come from the industry itself. And I feel like very rarely it actually comes from the market, from the customers. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it comes from all over. I think part of it is the sort of maybe the individualism of of maybe social media and and feeling like you want to be able to kind of stake your claim on a campaign or an activity in order to kind of put something up on LinkedIn and and get lots of likes. And I think for me, when you're managing a brand, and I've been really lucky that I've worked for some iconic brands like Fever Tree was a leader is a leader in in tonic and I feel like we'll be around for a really long time hopefully lucky saint will will go down that route as well so the way I kind of view it is I'm looking after it for the period of time that I'm here rather than I'm just trying to kind of get all of my ideas heard and and be able to say that that something I did was completely me um because even though I started here only a year after we we began already the shoot with the nun that had been shot by Rankin had already been done a lot of the kind of brand had been built out and I think for me it's not about sort of feeling like you need to do something new just so you can put your name on it um it's about looking after the brand for the time that you're there and and kind of building on a legacy so for me I think it's really exciting to kind of dig out what those brand codes are and what those brand assets are and 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 I've definitely felt the pressure you know I remember when we presented the dry January campaign last year internally to the team and I was really nervous that people might be disappointed when we showed them an asset that they'd seen before, which was the brilliant photograph of the nun holding the Lucky Saint bottle. I thought they might be expecting something kind of brand new, but actually everyone was really thrilled that we were using that asset. And I think a phrase that we're using this year for planning our dry January campaign is kind of fresh consistency and bringing something new, but not every single year kind of completely having a departure from the, the sort of original brand asset. Um, because if you keep doing that, you essentially don't have a brand. Yeah, yeah, totally. I love, I love the idea of fresh consistency. I can't take credit for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, I think we're we're all only custodians of other people's words, right? So I think fresh consistency is is great because you know it's like um it was I was talking to um Susan Coghill on the previous episode and she talked about people had a a preconception that during covid and during lockdown because she's cmo of um tourism for for australia people assumed quite incorrectly that her job had gone really quiet when actually she said it was probably the busiest she's ever been because people have memories that need refreshing you know that 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 fresh consistency is so vital if you're trying to build up that recall and build up those those, those kind of memories so that's really nice there, yeah. um, are there similarities to what you do now in the brand Lucky Saint and your previous role at Fever Tree? I think they're similar brands in the sense that they kind of rode the wave of a category at the time. So for Fever Tree, it was the sort of craft gin boom and they kind of geniusly, is that a word? <laughs> yeah, yeah, why not? Um, you know, they they rode that wave um, of the craft gin boom and and... I think Lucky Saint is riding the alcohol-free wave and and it's something that's been quite sort of palpable in the three and a half years that I've been here. When I first started, I remember our first year of doing events, um, people literally laughing in our face when we were asking if they'd like to try some alcohol-free beer. Um, and you fast forward you know, almost four years and we'll be at an event and people will be coming over to us and sharing stories of how we had one guy then this is no exaggeration, come up to us at Big Festival saying that he'd tried us the year before and since then had given up alcohol, had lost seven stone, had got his wife and his job back. Wow. <laughs> I, can't, I can't claim that we can do that for everybody, but um, just seeing that difference between, you know, I remember so clearly um, being at Manchester Craft Beer Festival and they placed us right at the entrance and people were coming in, 
you know, ready to to get pretty boozed up. And we were there saying, would you like to try our alcohol-free lager? And they were really genuinely laughing in our face. Um, to now is is been a, an amazing transformation. And I think there's still so far to go. So for me, they're definitely two similar brands in the way that they are kind of riding the wave of, of a sort of cultural change in FMCG and, and people's behavior, I suppose. Um, and my decision to leave Fever Tree and try and find something, um, a brand that was kind of having that moment was was very conscious because when I was at Fever Tree, I joined, I think they were probably already about 10 or 11 years in. Um, and it was an amazing brand for work to work for, an amazing brand to have on my CV. Um, but I felt like I had kind of joined a bit too late to enjoy Indeed. that that initial startup feeling. And I was yeah. definitely looking for a brand that not only was a great brand and tasted great, but also was in a category that was sort of having a moment. Um, and that's been really exciting to be a part of. Yeah, no doubt. And then in terms of the cultural change that you would have witnessed, I, I mean, I suppose firstly at, at Fever Tree and, and more recently with Lucky Saint, obviously you can't really beat the in-person, in-the-flesh experience that, you know, you referenced there when you were placed in the entrance to the to the beer festival. But what role does, does other types of research and data play in you understanding that cultural change? Because the, the alcohol-free like market, not even just beer market, but the alcohol-free market has, has presumably boomed in recent years. And there seems to be so many different influences. How do you try and understand that? I think, you know, data's played a big role in our marketing, um, even though we're a startup. And I think one of the best bits of advice I ever got when I first joined the company, um, I had a call with um, a lady called Helen, who I think is marketing director at Eat Real now and Proper Corn, if I'm correct. Um, and I felt a little bit overwhelmed kind of, you know, starting a new role in a completely new category. We didn't have tons of money to buy loads of data. Um, but her advice to me was, you know, you do have data. It is there if you look for it, whether it's Googling, you know, articles around the category, whether it's having conversations with loyal customers. Um, there was a lot more information there than I was really realizing. Um, and when we started speaking to customers, understanding, you know, people's attitudes to, to alcohol, to alcohol free, um, it did begin to shape our marketing in a way that although we have a lot more data now, five years on when we're a much bigger brand, um, a lot of those insights that we had at the very beginning still shape a lot of our marketing. Um, so to give an example, I think it's really easy to assume that the reason people drink alcohol free beer is because they don't want a hangover. Um, which sort of logically would make sense. But actually, when you look at kind of certain demographics, they're not getting blind drunk. They don't have massive hangovers. And actually, it's more just a holistic approach to health. Um, so we've made a very conscious decision to, to not talk about hangovers in our marketing um, because we we sort of say our, our consumers better than that, cleverer than that to know, obviously, alcohol-free beer is not going to give you a hangover. We don't need to tell them that. So we very much focus on the moment, the taste, what it's like to drink in the moment rather than thinking about how good it's going to feel the next day. Um, so I think that was one of the, the best bits of advice I got kind of early on at Lucky Saint was you have more information than you think. You don't need huge Excel documents and data reports to be able to shape a really strong marketing strategy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really smart, really smart. I intentionally was looking forward to your quickfire answer of bottle or draft um, for various reasons. One, like internally here, at least at Gasp, are most people within the business understand or think of your bottle when they think of Lucky Saints. Um, there was a great interview that Luke, your founder, did with a friend of ours, John Evans, for Uncensored CMO, where he, and in fact, you said draft is everything in your reply, I think, and he made the same point where if you go to a bar and you buy a bottle when everyone else is drinking pints, then you already stand out as being different. So so making Lucky Saint feel like a, a choice, like someone drinking a beer, alcoholic beer, sorry, is, is also part of that kind of, it's a really simple point, but it feels really profound. Yeah, we did a talk not that long ago about innovation and, and we were saying that innovation doesn't have to mean something completely new that no one's ever seen before. Um, and our example was a beer brand launching on draft doesn't sound very innovative, but actually for an alcohol-free beer, it was at the time that we launched back in 2020, 
incredibly innovative and not really something that anyone else was doing. And we were a little bit unfortunate that straight after we launched on draft, COVID hit and all the pubs and bars shut down. But since then, and since hospitality has you know, made a comeback, I think draft has been an incredibly important part of our business, not just because you know we want to be in every pub, but from a brand perspective that the, the sort of quality cue that you get with a freshly poured pint, um, the way that we show up in pubs, bars and restaurants with our branded fonts and our glassware, I think, you know, Guinness is a really good example of um, that iconic image of a, of the, the black and white pine. Um, and I think what we really noticed during COVID, um, my first day at Lucky Saint was the day before we went into lockdown. Um, so it's a steep learning curve, but was that people weren't missing alcohol. We all had plenty of alcohol at home if we wanted to. They were really missing a freshly poured pint and enjoying it in the pub with their friends, especially in the UK where pub culture is such a part of our lives. Um, so draft has always been a focus and it's interesting what you were just saying about bottle. When you, when you think about, like you're saying, you think of the bottle and it's an interesting point saying bottle or draft. I think for me, definitely draft as a consumer, I'd always want a pint on draft over a bottle. Having said that from a brand perspective, we're very conscious to always show the bottle in our advertising, even though we have a can, we have draft because it is that iconic shape. It's the iconic blue label. Um, and that's, what's going to that's the repetitive brand code that we want to put out there rather than a pint of Lucky Saint necessarily, but the experience of, of having a pint of Lucky Saint um, is, is sort of unbeatable when it comes to alcohol-free beer because you just don't, you don't feel left out. You don't feel other. You can enjoy around with your friends. Um, and I think we recently did a lot of, um, we called a lot of our kind of, um, we call them super saints people who, buy regularly online just to understand a bit more about how they feel about the brand and um being able to enjoy a pint was incredibly important to them and I think especially in a place like the UK where drinking is such a big part of the culture and, and you find that across Europe but um a pint is it, it's something it's more than just liquid in a glass isn't it it's um I think it's it's really important to people to feel included yeah I mean you're talking to someone who has an older brother who's been a, a, a publican for most of his career yeah. um, until very recently in fact so yeah pub culture is certainly something I'm I'm familiar with and and actually the truth is he was very loathed to agree that there was a whole boom in alcohol free anything to be honest but I think that's a uh, more reflective on, on on Gareth than it is anything else the other thing about draft though I suppose like you could you could uh, define that in many ways I think you've done a brilliant job of doing just that but I think fans of Ehrenberg Bass would probably just say it's simply physical availability right because when you walk into a pub instinctively you you check out the draft taps before you look in the fridges yeah definitely and I think also during COVID obviously table service became such a big thing so you weren't standing at the bar and you couldn't even see the fridges behind the bar yeah of course so the importance of having a branded font on the bar you know, became even more prevalent and it has been transformational for our business. And we have a really big sales team, especially for the size of our brand um, and draft is their focus. And, and we put a really big focus on um, looking after the draft beer that we put out there. So we have um, Charlie who um, is our quality technician and travels around and makes sure that the beer is pouring really well. So it's not just that we're available on draft. We really go the extra mile to make sure the quality of the beer is there, that the quality of the experience is there. And I think, um, you know, people really appreciate that. Are there any, because instinctively, I think it's easy to think of disadvantages uh, you you might face being an alcohol-free beer. And I suppose even even just fighting for, for room on the draft taps, I imagine at some stage when it comes to sort of distribution type conversations, less so now, but I'm sure in the beginning it was quite hard to, you know, nudge a, a, an alcoholic beer out of the way to get that space. Well, what are the, are there advantages as well? Because presumably as an alcohol-free uh, beer, you're able to kind of exist and play in spaces that traditional beer brands can't. Definitely. And we talked at the beginning about breaking rules, honouring traditions, which is one of our mantras at Lucky Saint. And I think that really relates to the fact that beer is such a kind of, is so steeped in history from the way it's brewed to the way it's, enjoyed and especially like I say in in UK culture um but I think when it comes to breaking rules that's where we can really have fun on the marketing team and an example of that was we sponsor the Hackney Half Marathon um and we were giving out cold cans at the finish line which obviously an alcoholic beer could never do 
Um, we're also official um, beer of dry January, which sounds like obviously an alcohol-free beer would do that, but actually they they would not partner with a brand that had an alcoholic counterpart. So the fact that we're dedicated alcohol-free allows us to do that and to play in that space as well. So um, I think it's really easy to try and emulate lots of things that have been done in marketing and beer in the past. And like I say, we use Guinness as a bit of a North Star, but I think on top of that, we're also finding new ways to kind of show up and activate as a beer brand. Um, and we very much see ourselves as both an alcohol-free brand and a beer brand, um, not just one or the other. So for example, all of our staff are Cicerone trained, which is a bit like being a sommelier, so wine. Um, we really care about our team knowing about beer because we're not just alcohol-free. Um, we're very proud to be a beer brand. So it's been really interesting, I think, over time, picking the bits of traditional beer marketing um, you know, like an amazing, iconic glass to enjoy your pint in, but also thinking about new ways that that we can show up and activate. Yeah, yeah, really good. The the um, I guess cynicism might be the right word that you faced with consumers early on, and people, I suppose, not reacting in the way that they might nowadays um, to just the idea of having an alcohol-free beer. How? Like from your side, how how do you kind of segment that? Is it as easy? Is this one of the very very few things that actually can be quite uh, well segmented demographically? Is it just the age of the consumer? Typically, younger people are embracing a, a more kind of alcohol free type lifestyle, or is that just a you know is that a misconception? I don't think it's a misconception. I think definitely younger people are drinking less, but I think that. There are so many motivations to, to drinking less that apply across many different age groups. So when it comes to target audience, you know, we, we go after a very broad audience because the reasons why you might not want to drink are, you know, there, there's a multitude of reasons why that might be from you have small kids and you're having to wake up early or you're maybe a little bit older and you want to look after your health or you just are really ambitious and you want to be more productive um, all the way through to younger generations who um, maybe just don't want to kind of be caught on social media, falling out of a club and losing their shoes and things like that. Um, <laughs> Have you lost your shoes before, Emily? Many times when I was not for a while, not for a while. That was sort of my signature move. Um, Amazing. But I think, so I, I don't think it's as simple as saying this age group is moderating their drinking um moderating is now we say moderating is mainstream um and it's because over half of uk adults are moderating their drinking and it's very much moderators that we're going after because there's so many more of them than people who are completely teetotal so i don't think you can kind of hone in on very very specific demographics um i think we we try and be a bit broader than that that's fair and um, I said your quote that I use in your introduction that you want to be to alcohol-free beer what Guinness is to stout. Mm-hmm. Um, relatively speaking, do you think you're already that? And, and if not, uh, how do you become that? I mean, I couldn't... Because the brand is strong, right? I couldn't claim to already be where Guinness is considering they're hundreds of years old as a brand, but... No, but rel- relative to alcohol-free beer. Yeah, I think we're definitely... I mean, we are kind of um I was gonna say statistically but you know what I mean factually the number one dedicated alcohol-free beer in the UK um that's a good start which is a really good start and I think also we we spend a lot of time speaking to customers our sales team feedback a lot from um our trade customers and we are finding like we do have that bar call of people actually going in and asking for a lucky saint rather than asking for an alcohol-free beer um which is the ultimate goal and I think um the absolute gold standard for any brand of, of you know you asking for that brand rather than asking for the category so I think we have made really good headway in getting there I think it's quite easy you know we're, we're based in London and um, it can be easy to be in a bit of a bubble um, but I think there's a huge amount of work to do well definitely in London but also outside of London and, and getting on draft in as many pubs as possible so I think we're doing everything we can to get there and attitudes are changing and, and we kind of have that that sort of um, wind behind us 
if you like. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, there are also massive alcohol-free brands, you know, like Heineken Zero that are doing great things for the category and normalizing it. And Guinness Zero launching was was fantastic. Um, so I think we're, we're getting there. Um, but I think also when you're a marketer, it's it's really easy to forget that that this is your whole you know week that you're spending all your time talking about this brand thinking about this brand managing this brand and actually there are lots of people who still have no idea what lucky saint is and i think we another one of our sort of internal mantras is stay humble and i think that's a really important one to not sort of fool yourself that everybody knows who you are and and remind yourself that there's still um there's still a huge job to do and i, I can't remember who said this it might have been mark gritson talked about once you sort of cross, cross the threshold of a brand and you start working there, you're no longer the consumer because you know too much. And I think yeah, totally. something I sort of remind my team about a lot is is exactly that and not, not sort of um, kind of falling into the trap of thinking that everybody sees your brand everywhere as much as you do. So I think we are well on our way and we have the right um, tools to get there. But... Um, still a long way to go in an exciting way yeah yeah for sure you know i mean mark certainly makes that point in both the marketing and the, the brand management mini mba courses and i think it's one that's just it's so easy to miss right and i think we're all guilty of it to varying degrees but that kind of i mean market orientation whatever you want to call it that kind of just having that empty mind and, and filling it with intel and knowledge is, is a critical step that i think is, is easy easy to overlook there's also i mean i think it might have been probably paul bailey said something along the lines of a brand is a work in progress and i think that understanding that it's not just done now that you're enjoying recognition and you're you're enjoying you know where you are at the moment it doesn't mean that it isn't a work in progress and it's a continuing effort in terms of what you're doing now and what the next say five-year plan might look like from a brand perspective how do you manage your investing in like the brand which is which is highly evident and investing kind of further down the funnel because your recent campaign you did a lot of outdoor media a lot of out, out of home which is which is again really encouraging to see what? but how do you balance that and is that an easy conversation to have internally because i know marketers often struggle with top of funnel bottom of funnel brand activation whatever you want to call it sales now sales later whatever yeah i think um something that we talk about a lot is being an omnichannel business and the fact that you know we're d2c on trade off trade and understanding and being humble to know that you still have a huge amount of work to do in terms of awareness um definitely impacts the decisions we make um when it comes to kind of planning out our marketing so awareness is by far the most important thing for us um and trials so we do a huge amount of sampling because we know we have really great kind of repeat customers. Somebody tastes our product, they come back for more, which is such a powerful tool. And we're really lucky to have that um, and to have a product that we really believe in. So I think um, it's also just not overcomplicating it. We don't need a 58 page marketing strategy to be able to do that. I think it is as simple as knowing, make people aware of us and, and get as much kind of product um, sampled as possible we're not trying to sort of reinvent the wheel. And I think that's also something that I kind of wish I'd known before is that you don't you don't need to overcomplicated strategies or really long documents can feel intimidating sometimes, but actually they're not the best and um, simple is good. And I remember having a chat with our chairman, Shalene, once and um, had this sort of very quick 20 minute chat, but there were lots of like very, kind of pearls of wisdom in there and one one thing he said to me was a good strategy is simple but precise so you don't want something to be completely simplistic in the sense that it's vague um but it should fit on one page but it should be precise so um i'm trying to think of an example without giving our whole marketing strategy away <laughs> um, but i think that idea of being simple but precise and and um not being vague but being direct and to the point is is really important. So now to your original question, I think it, it's important to have a balance of, you know, obviously it's really important to have visibility at point of purchase, whether that's an amazing bath on, branded bath on in a pub or um, off-shelf feature in a supermarket because, you know, alcohol-free is still an emerging category. Um, but I think we have really 
invested in brand. Um, and I think also something that I found really kind of exciting and sort of freeing from a marketing point of view was when we were talking about our dry January campaign from this January just gone. And you can look at an insight which might say, you know, taste is the number one most important thing when it comes to alcohol-free beer. And that's kind of, you know, obvious that a consumer is going to say that. But actually in terms of being iconic and being memorable, we wanted our brand assets to be kind of distinctive because every brand could say they're the best tasting alcohol-free beer, especially on an ad before somebody's actually tasted it. It's very easy for everybody to say that. Um, so we thought more about, well, how can we be iconic and stand out? And this asset that we had of a, of a saint holding our beer, no other beer, but it wouldn't make sense for any other beer brand to do that. Whereas for us with our name, Lucky Saint, it, it felt completely ownable. Um, so it didn't say, you know, the number one best tasting alcohol-free beer. Yes. It was just yeah. an amazing shot that really was very kind of arresting and didn't look like anything else that was being advertised during that time. So I think um, having that distinctiveness as a brand at the top of funnel and then maybe having more direct um, messaging when you do reach a supermarket and you're trying to navigate the alcohol-free section um, is a bit of a mix. But yeah, not kind of giving into... It's almost not, it's, it's not patronizing your audience and knowing that like you don't have to tell, you don't have to spell everything out for them. That was a brilliant answer. I really like just going back to your simple but precise point is that there's also perhaps a misconception that simple means easy, but it's really hard to simplify something like like something that is ultimately really intelligent and complex into something that is simple and precise. Yeah, I think something that I've found throughout my career is that it, and something I've discussed a lot with our marketing director, Kurt, too, is this feeling that you need you need more information or you need to, you can kind of fool yourself into thinking that that you don't know enough or or you need more data or, and actually just getting on with it um, with whatever information that you have is the best possible thing that you can do. I think probably in any role, but particularly in marketing, it can be really tempting. You know, there's so much out there that we're bombarded with on LinkedIn and um, in like marketing press that that makes you feel maybe smaller than some of the bigger brands that have loads more information and they have all these tools at their disposal but actually just like whatever information you have is the only information you're going to have so just cracking on and moving forward as as in sort of any scenario with any information that you have has really served us well as a brand and as a startup and not kind of allowing yourself to be paralyzed by not feeling like you know you've got all the information you don't need all the information and I think that idea of it being really simple is really important because you I remember somebody sending me I won't call out who it is um example of a, a brand guidelines and marketing strategy when I first started and it was it was a brand that was far bigger than us and that they were international and they had all these different products so it was, it was a completely different example to Lucky Saint but I remember looking at that and thinking how how on earth am I gonna write like put together this was before we had a marketing director when I first started and we were only a team of five now how am I going to write this strategy document how am I going to write our brand guidelines I'm never going to be able to do something as sort of intricate as this and actually I didn't need to um and especially when you're a scale up people don't have time to read you know 85 page documents we have a bit of an ongoing joke about how many one pages we get <laughs> we do um but I think that idea of fitting things on one page is actually really important you don't no one's going to look at it it has to be something that people can can action um and if you make that a humongous document that isn't engaging is overcomplicated, is confusing no one's going to do it and then people won't move forward so i think just simple is best and and moving forward sort of at any cost is is really important yeah totally agree i think your point on the one page is um and, and forcing yourself to do the hard work and the thinking to simplify something is it almost it's almost the same point I suppose in as, as feeling that maybe you're unarmed if you don't have all of these data points and you don't have you know your I don't know econometrics systems and in, in play and I'm not dismissing that at all by the way because Dr. Grace Kite would kill me but <laughs> um the, the, it's very easy to feel a sort of paralysis yeah when there is too much information but I, I genuinely believe that what you were saying about making sure you're the best tasting, but also making sure you would, you know, really recognizable and distinct is is more than good enough. And actually probably better than what most marketers are 
focusing on uh, in their day-to-day anyway. And it actually puts you in a really, really good and really good, really strong position. There was a, there was a talk, funny enough, in, in uh, Mark Ritson's opening talk at Festival of Marketing last week, he kind of made a similar point to, to one that we, we make here when we're talking to clients about being distracted by so many things. And the, the data he used in his talk was something that the, the, the team at Better Briefs had put together um, where they had uh, effectively compared what percentage of clients thought their targeting criteria in a brief was, you know, uh, again, simple but precise, right? Let's mm-hmm. use that, that language versus what an agency thought. And they couldn't even agree. I mean, it was, it was worrying. It was about 33% actually agreed that the briefs that were given out to agencies clearly defined the target audience. And so when you've got things like that happening, I feel like it's almost it's almost that saying that we're we're all painting the fence when the house is on fire. Like the, yeah. the basics, <laughs> like the core basics about being distinct and memorable. Yeah. We're not doing that. We're not we're not putting the data that needs the simple data that needs to be elaborated. We're not doing that. So let's let's just get the fundamentals right. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's really encouraging to hear you say that, Emily. I think you're you know, Lucky Saints clearly in, in very good hands. Well, myself and our head of creative Meg is a bit of an ongoing joke in the business that we have a catchphrase of put it in a brief because um we're so sort of strict about things being briefed well, both internally and externally. Cause I think when you just waste so much time otherwise, and um, we have a really simple briefing template and, and everybody in the business uses it. And I think that has helped us move faster. Um, and again, it's that thing of, of being, of things being simple. I think for me as well, like I didn't go through a grad scheme or have like blue chip experience. And I think that, sometimes can make you feel like there's some secret that you're not in on that everybody else has had all this training and that you haven't and um but actually every business is different and there there isn't a kind of a set template that they teach you that then can be applied to everything and I think that's been really freeing as well speaking to certain mentors who just have said you know you have all the data that you need keep it simple but precise and just sort of get on with it and keep keep moving and not allowing yourself to um, be overwhelmed or sort of intimidated. And it was the same thing when I first joined, e-commerce wasn't something that we'd ever really discussed, but then during COVID it became absolutely essential, you know, for the business. And I had no previous experience in that, but I kind of taught myself all of it. And now we have an amazing e-commerce team, which thank God I, they are amazing and I, I don't have to figure out uh, how to run Facebook ads anymore. But, um, I think, yeah, just that idea that, no matter how junior or senior you are or how much training you've had, you know, the information that you need is there. You just need to find it and then and then crack yeah, on. Perfect. We interrupt this podcast as we thought your ears had suffered enough of the monotone ramblings of the host. Now this is a voice. Most pods drop an ad into these interruptions, not gasp. We won't awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host on 01189-952-007 to talk strategy and research like other companies did only last week. Let's get you back to the pod. There aren't very many good things about getting older, but one of them is you care less about what people, you, you know, you, you realize that I don't give a shit what this person thinks. What, what do I care? Oops. Yeah, well, there's only one Bob Hoffman. Episode 24 of Call to Action was a classic, but hold on. I'm going to move to listen to questions, are. Emily. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. Uh, we've got two for you, starting with Lizzie. You've touched on the Hackney Half already, so that you, there might be others or you might want to elaborate on that. Lizzie asks, you've spoken about building an aspirational brand that people want in their hands. How have you gone about creating the lifestyle aspect around Lucky Saints? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that there's definitely an element of like understanding our consumers and understanding their their interests. Um, and we do kind of, you know, there's an active lifestyle element, a foodie element to, to the activations that we do. I think that um, we just try to elevate every touch point that you have with with Lucky Saint to kind of create that aspirational feel. So for example, Hackney Half's a good example where um, our brand manager, uh, Sarah, had been planning the event and there were about four other drinks bands, 
brands that were being handed out at the finish line. Um, and Lucky Saint was the only one who'd gone to the lengths of, she bought like, I don't know if this is right, but something like 15 tons of ice so that all of our 15,000 cans of Lucky Saint could be chilled. Um, and it was that extra sort of mile that she'd gone and and that extra sort of elevation of that moment um, that really transformed our activation at the event. And everyone was talking about us afterwards because luckily for us, it was 28 degrees on the day. And if you've just run a half marathon, the last thing you want handed to you is a kind of lukewarm um, drink. So I think it's just in terms of like aspirational is a word that we use a lot um, when discussing our marketing activations. And I think it's just taking everything to that next level to make to make it memorable um and the same with kind of the way that we advertise or the way that we do social media um it's an ongoing discussion of like you know things like UGC and um that don't always feel very aspirational but what can we do to kind of elevate that so be really choosy about the kind of people that we work with or that that send us um user generated content um even down to things like the website experience um we spent a very long time um with a great agency called Studio Juice to build our website and we really wanted to elevate every touch point on there. So I think in terms of a lifestyle, something that we talk about when we do our induction, brand induction, which everybody gets when they join the company, we talk about the tattoo test, which it basically came off the back of a talk I went to with the guy who created the net promoter score. And he sort of was talking about the net promoter score. And then he said at the end, but some brands just don't need it because you know, if you're Harley Davidson, everybody's got a tattoo of your brand. You kind of know that they love you. Um, and we talk about the tattoo test of would what we're doing in our marketing make you want to show off or hide your Lucky Saint tattoo? Um, and then we actually met two people who did have a Lucky Saint tattoo. So the example became all real. Um, and I think it's just that element of when it comes to the lifestyle and being aspirational is like, is is this something that's going to make somebody want to sh proudly show off their Lucky Saint tattoo or or is it a bit cringe? Is it a bit embarrassing and they'd want to hide it? And I think we sort of hold ourselves to that standard. Yeah, I love the tattoo test. That's fantastic. Dan, number two, Dan asks, does the Lucky Saint double as a testing ground for pricing experiments or trialing marketing tactics? Could you let us in on any interesting insights you might have picked up through the pub? Yeah, so we've definitely, it is our intention for it to sort of be a bit of a lab for things like that and, and a way that we can sort of share our learnings with the rest of the on-trade. Um, we've only been open since February, so um, we haven't even traded for a whole year yet, uh, but it's definitely the plan to kind of um, share those insights once we have them. Um, I suppose the biggest thing is is that you want to make ordering alcohol-free as easy as possible. So we did a study recently with... Um, an agency called CAM, and they found that I think it was 800 million pounds worth of value is walking out the door with people ordering tap water. Um, and it's because people are embarrassed about asking about alcohol-free. Whereas if you have an alcohol-free section on the menu, if you make it really prevalent, if you have a great alcohol-free beer on draft, if you have um, a really accessible alcohol-free drinks menu, people will order it. They won't order a tap water because no, they, people don't really want to sit there and drink tap water when all their friends are enjoying a drink. Um, so I suppose that would be the biggest thing, you know, the, the proportion of sales of alcohol-free in our pub is much higher than um, another pub. And you might say, well, that's, that's obvious because you're an alcohol-free brand. But actually for anyone who's been to our pub, they'll see, you know, it's beautifully kind of put together and it doesn't feel like it belongs to a particular brand. It's, it is a proper pub. Um, and I think that the the fact that, you know, more of a percentage of our sales are alcohol-free is down to how available it is and what a great offering we have. Um, not just Lucky Saint on Draft, but tons of great alcohol-free options. So I would say making alcohol-free really accessible, visible, easy to order, educating, you know, bar staff as well and making them feel really confident in recommending alcohol-free is is how you will kind of, and also it's sort of thinking about not thinking that that means that somebody's going to switch from a more expensive alcoholic drink to a alcohol-free option, but actually that they're switching from tap water to to an alcohol-free option. So I think that's probably the biggest learning so far, but we are excited to share more once we've been open for a whole year. Nice. Perfect. 
So, Emily, the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses, starting with number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? I've been thinking about this. I think my biggest piece of advice would be to not take things personally. (laughs) And by that, I mean, like, I suppose how that relates to your career is that, you know, your, your career is most important to you. Um, and so if somebody isn't recognizing you for the work you're doing or um, you don't feel like your career is getting you, you know, going where you want it to, it's not necessarily, you shouldn't take that personally because everybody is super busy and everybody is focusing on their own stuff. So um, kind of fighting your corner and and prioritizing your own development and your own um, progression is really important. Also by don't, take things personally I think just being really open to feedback and opening open to grow um I'm sure everybody has someone has come on this podcast and talked about growth mindset before but it's something we talk about a lot at Lucky Sane um and I think not taking things personally is a big part of that and sort of building that resilience to be able to hear um feedback about your work uh so I think that would be my biggest one is like don't don't take things personally don't take things personally is it is a, is a wonderful piece of advice particularly people who work in creative departments, I might add. Yeah. And I say that as someone who, who used to do just that, and, and, and it is something that you do need to learn. And and also, I think, I personally, not to change your point, but to add to it, I think that separating subjective feedback into objective feedback is something that the lines between the two sometimes aren't received in the way they're intended. Um, but, uh, yeah. Well I think said. also just not getting too personally attached to a particular idea, because mm. I think, um that can make you ignore data it can make you ignore what your customers are saying when you get too personally attached to a particular creative idea or activation idea or um or one particular insight um i think if you do that it can be really easy to sort of miss the signs that it actually won't work and and just being open to kind of hearing different points of view on something um I don't know, you can choose to put this in or not, but one of my old bosses used to say, kill the baby, which by that he meant that, you know, sometimes you would just love an idea so much that that you you were you were almost giving it too much attention and you were kind of um giving it favorable treatment compared to other ideas and not hearing other people's ideas. And sometimes he would say, Kill the baby, it's not gonna work. Um and I sometimes think about that. When I, yeah. when I feel myself fighting a little bit too hard for an idea, yeah, I think, yeah. this idea, is it because there's an insight? Is that because it's data? Is it because something that a consumer has said? Or is it because I just feel emotionally connected to it? I think, yeah, so like don't take things personally in that sense as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's such good advice. Good advice for me too. If you, um, yeah, if you know, you know. Um, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I think... So we've spoken a little about a bit about this. Um, I think during my career, so like I say, careers advisor at university wasn't particularly helpful. I had no idea that there were even grad grad schemes at drinks brands. That just wasn't something that was in my uh, world at the time. Um, And I would ban this idea that, you know, you need kind of grad scheme blue chip experience to be a good marketer, although there are plenty of amazing marketers with that experience. But I remember once applying for a job ages ago and them t- telling me that I wasn't going to be looked at. My CV wasn't going to be looked at because I didn't have blue chip experience and I didn't have a particular job title on my CV. Um, and I think the idea that, you know, there's such a small window um, when you're graduating, if you've even been to university, which again is not the be all and end all at all. Um, but there's such a small window to kind of enter that world. And if you don't enter it, it doesn't mean that you're not a talented marketer. And I think also that applies to, you know, I think things are changing when it comes to degrees and like people looking for a 2-1, for example, on a CV rather than looking at somebody more kind of holistically. But I think I would banish that idea that um, you need to have had that initial training because like I say, there's such a small window and if you have no idea what that even is, if you didn't even know that grad schemes at FMCG brands existed like I didn't. Um, it seems a shame to kind of discard people based on that. Yeah, totally agree. I think there's so much to fix with the recruitment process in 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 all kind of directions of, of life. 
I yeah. remember, um, I think it was guest number two. So we're going back 120 odd episodes to Stephen Colgan, whose name, um, you might not be familiar with his name, but you'll certainly be familiar with his work. He was head elf of BBC's QI. He was the, he's the author of several um, best-selling books. Um, but one of the things I like talking about with Stephen is he was also head of the Met Police Behavioural Science Problem Solving Department. Yeah. Um, so amongst other things, he introduced the idea successfully into giving out lollipops outside nightclubs at closing, especially in built-up residential areas, because it makes it so much harder to be noisy when you've got a lollipop in your mouth. Like he, he just he introduced such amazing, wonderful things from a behavioral science perspective. Really, really effective. Very yeah. inspirational, inspirational man. And in his kind of early semi-retirement, he was looking for a very simple job to keep himself busy. And he was his CV wasn't even acknowledged for a marketing exec role at a local university that was paying less than twenty thousand pounds salary because. He didn't have a degree. Yeah. And you just think that just doesn't make any sense. Like this guy is absolutely incredible and would add so much value to so many businesses. And it wasn't even looked at. So you're right. The it's it's the, you know, whether it's a two one that people are looking for or the fact you've got a certain type of experience or you can tick a box, it's 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 crazy how much we overvalue a, a tick in a certain box when it comes to that process. I have an example when I, I... I left Fever Tree and did some freelancing while I was sort of looking, like I said, I was sort of very consciously looking for a startup that was having a bit of a moment. And so I was freelancing during that time and I freelanced for a very short period of time for Samsung and they were working on an innovation project and they were looking specifically for freelancers that didn't have any experience in tech or mobile or anything for that exact reason, because they wanted fresh ideas. And actually the project got canned because of COVID, but I thought that was a really interesting and like encouraging approach that they were specifically looking for people that weren't bringing sort of traditional ideas to the table that's fantastic um, which was really interesting and I think it's hard isn't it how are you meant to find those people those kind of you know it's it's so tricky on all sides but yeah I think this idea that you need to have had this very specific training it's been a bit of a paranoia that's followed me throughout my career, but I feel like now I've kind of let that go and realized you you can be a good marketer without that. Good. Well done. <laughs> Number three, then, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? I jotted some of these down so I didn't forget. Um, one was a book that my manager gifted me when she first joined the company a year ago, which was called The Making of a Manager um, by Julie Zhu, I think you pronounce her name. Um and she uh, was really high up at, I think it was Facebook. Um, and there's lots of kind of really actionable um, advice in there for when you're a manager. Because I think um, being a manager is something that often you don't get any training, especially if you're working in a startup. Although I was actually lucky, Lucky Saint did give me some um, management training, but it was really helpful. And I think so much of working is not just about your kind of individual skill, but it's how you work with other people and, and manage other people. And that can apply to like managing up as well as managing people who report to you. So that was a really good one. Um, another one was damn good advice for people with talent. Oh, George Lois. I love that. Yeah. Um, which we have at home. Um, and I just love that you can kind of dip into it for inspiration and, and this idea of Again, like not following traditional routes to get great ideas. And in the same vein, I'm going to sound like a bit of a nerd that I, this is what I read on holiday, but um, was Alchemy by Rory Sutherland, um, which again follows that idea that kind of, it's not about being logical. And I think that can be really freeing. Like I said, when it comes to alcohol-free beer, the idea that, you know, shouldn't we talk about the fact that you don't get a hangover? Well, that logically makes sense, but actually doesn't make for the most distinctive advertising. Uh, and then I thought of another one, which always makes me laugh that my mum gave me this book. She's a head teacher, which might um, give you a bit of an insight into why she gave me this book, but it's called Power by Robert Greene. And it's sort of about influencing people and it's actually banned in prisons um, because it's, it can help you influence people so much. Um, and influence is a great skill to have in any, any walk of life. Um, but yeah, it always makes me laugh that that's something that my mum gifted me. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, they're brilliant books. I think I think power and the making of a manager are new 
to the show. I think they. Oh, good. I think they've come up, and and funny enough, damn good advice doesn't come up anywhere nearly as as, as often as I as I feel it should. Um, yeah. So that's wonderful, and alchemy. Yeah, I mean, alchemy's wonderful. And in case it's been a while since I've I've made this plug for Rory, but please get the audio book because Rory gets more royalties. <laughs> well, yeah, we did. We did. We were we were driving around a lot um, on holiday, and my husband's in a similar industry, and and we were listening to the audio book. So, I well, to... and and the other thing that's so good about the audio book is because it's Rory narrating, you get more content than's in the printed book. Exactly. Perfect. Oh, awesome. These are great. Uh, and then number four, Emily, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow that honour to our guest who has to give the reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? Yes. I I may be cheating the system slightly, but I, I mean, <laughs> so many amazing people that have helped me in my career. So um, I thought I would dedicate it rather than to one specific person, to a group of people. Um, and I talked earlier about the career advisor suggesting I became a teacher, um, which wasn't necessarily for me, but I think um, I would dedicate it to all the amazing teachers I had um, throughout school, university, and in my career who kind of taught me um, all number of things. Uh, and I think that kind of passing on of information, um, my whole family of teachers, my mom, my sister, my brother, my sister-in-law, my grandparents were all teachers. So um, I have a real appreciation. I think they're kind of unsung heroes, so I'll dedicate it to to teachers. Awesome. That's fantastic. No, we've never had that before, but that's fantastic. So this is dedicated to all of the teachers, and I um, hats off for bucking the trend. There must be a bit of family pressure to, uh, to teach. Uh, so listen, everyone uh, can head over to the listing and links to everything we've discussed will be there, including the making of a manager, damn good advice, alchemy, power we'll link to lucky saints how else can our listeners get more emily laws i'm on linkedin i'm on no other social media channels i think that's another thing that i would get rid of this idea that you have to have this amazing personal brand to have a great career because i um i don't post on instagram at all <laughs> I, uh, so yeah linkedin amazing uh, Emily, thank you so much. That hopefully, people listening haven't worked well would have no idea that we've done this over the space of I don't know three, four, or five separate recording attempts due to tech issues. But yeah. you've you've stuck with us. You've been really patient, and I'm hugely grateful not only for that, but for giving us everything from simple but precise, fresh consistency, the tattoo test, your story of your career, lucky saint, and everything else. So thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. It's been great to chat. Thanks so much. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do share and review the podcast. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online or email the mouthful, that is call to action at gasp.agency. Try and I try and I try.